Hello again, congregation. It is Pastor Jake once again coming to you from my office here at the Parsonage. Hopefully there won't be too many more of these messages that I have to deliver from here as it looks like uh, lockdown might be uh, slowly coming to an end and I'm very excited to actually get a chance to see you guys all in person again. Uh, last week we looked into the view of God that each of Job's friends had and how they had twisted their views to meet their ideas of who God was. We also saw that God wasn't really pleased at their misrepresentation of his character. We also looked at Jesus' words a caution to his disciples when they viewed and assumed that his state in life was a result of someone's sin. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that sometimes God allows situations to pass so he can show off his power to his people and to remind them of who he really is. Take Exodus 9.15 as another example of just how God works through our lives. Exodus 9.15 says, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In this passage, God is speaking. But to whom? Well, we know that from last week, sometimes God's will is to allow situations to pass so he can show up and remind us of who he really is. With that in mind, today I want to take a look at a very familiar story and look at it from a new angle. We're going to start in the middle of the story, and then we're going to work our way back towards the beginning, and we'll eventually cross that verse again. And I hope you really enjoy this one. As I have said before, I have a background of being raised as a passive atheist, not really believing in God and not really believing in anything else either. In high school, my best friend Dan and I had a very unique experience of taking a class called Independent P.E. Now, Independent P.E. is a class that you'll probably only ever find in a small town. For an hour and a half, twice a week, Dan and I would go into the guidance counselor's office and we would check ourselves out off the school property, letting them know in writing where we would be walking to and coming back from, and we would end back at the school property at the end of the time period. We'd be able to walk really anywhere we wanted to, and where we went walking varied on the day. But during our walks, we would often discuss these big unanswerable questions of life. Most of these questions boiled down to the themes of purpose, if there was a God in control or not. Those kind of questions that we all search out answers for. It was during these times that I started to realize that there was more to life than just living, and that there were answers that I just didn't know how to answer. The people of olden days sought to answer these very questions. Without direct revelation from God himself, they would have taken these items that they had saw, and that they knew without said items they would not be able to survive. These things would often include the sun, the river, the animals. Cultures around the world have come to not just hold these things in high regard, but many have ultimately started to worship them. Ancient Egypt is probably one of the best known examples of this polytheistic view of life. Poly meaning many, theistic meaning gods, or many gods together. Though Egypt had God's people in their midst for several hundred years, the people who worshipped the one and true living God, Egypt still held to the view that they worshipped many gods. In fact, some of their worship practices actually started rubbing off on God's people, and not the opposite way around, which isn't good. God allowed his people to go to Egypt to save them from famine during the days of Joseph. And now, it was finally time to bring them out. 
The key man God decided to use during the departure or exodus of his people was none other than the man we know as Moses. As we have talked about Moses recently, you may recall that though he was of lowly Jewish heritage, he was raised in Pharaoh's house as a member of his family. Moses had a very unique experience as he had been put in place for just such a time as to accomplish his God's will for his people. When you think about Moses, you probably remember that he led the exodus of God's people from Egypt, helped with the Ten Commandments, and he led the people through the wilderness for 40 years. But a fact that is easily overlooked is that Moses was about 80 when he finally stepped into this role. The Bible actually tells us in Exodus 7.7, it says, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. A little bit of background, when he was about 40, he killed a man and had been on the run for another 40 years, shepherding sheep in the wilderness for his father-in-law. First, Moses received his call from the Lord. Pick up the story with me in Exodus chapter 6, reading from verses 6 through 9. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Now Moses had been called by God for a very specific task, but it wasn't all cake and parties. First, he had to convince the Israelites that he had actually been sent by God, but their faith was being clouded by their circumstances. They had lost their hope that they could ever be redeemed, and they had allowed their circumstances to become their entire reality. What follows next is God deciding to take a very unique approach where he completely changes their circumstances to build their faith. Now the Egyptians worshipped many gods. Chiefly among them was Pharaoh himself, who was supposed to be a god in the flesh, in control completely of his dominion. According to their faith system, he and his pantheon of gods kept charge of everything. Now the Israelites wanted to have their yoke of slavery broken to be free men and no longer ruled by Egyptians, but it wasn't just their physical lives that the Egyptian had taken hold of, as it would seem from the next events that they had also taken charge of the hearts of the people, and the one true God wanted that yoke to be broken as well. Let's take each turning point one at a time. First, we're going to look at the miracle that kicks off the plagues that are very well known. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. Exodus chapter 7 reads, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned his wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one of them threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, as he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So to start the whole standoff on the right foot, God takes a shot right across the bow, and he has Moses not only perform a miraculous transformation of his wooden staff into a snake, but also has it literally devour the attempts of Pharaoh's magicians. 
talk about a strong start. God seems to have wanted to show off from the start that he was not messing around. What is unique about this is that it is clearly mentioned that Pharaoh is the one who hardens his heart to start off. He clearly thinks that he is in control and that nothing is out of his dominion. He is about to learn otherwise. The first plague comes directly after the account of the staff turning into a snake. In chapter 7, verses 14 through 24, we have the entire recording. Moses is told by God to go and to meet Pharaoh down at the river to bring the staff and to let God's people go. Pharaoh, of course, doesn't listen, so Moses, at God's command, stretches out his hands over the water and turns the Nile into blood. The Bible actually tells us in verse 19 that not only the Nile turns, but also the ponds, the canals, the reservoirs, even the pots made of wood and stone containing water would be turned to blood. This is a complete and total turn of all easily accessible water into blood. It completely becomes unusable and almost as a strong reminder that it hasn't just been dyed red, but actually turned into blood. All of the fish die. Can you imagine that stench? Not just the blood, but the, the fish stink. If you've ever been fishing, you probably know that smell that you get on your hands. But now it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. Earlier I had mentioned that the Egyptians worshipped many gods, and one thing that they worshipped was the Nile itself. But also it was home to not just one, but four gods of the Egyptians, all thought to be in complete control of the Nile and its flow. At this point, you would think Pharaoh would start taking Moses a little more seriously, but it doesn't even seem that he batted an eyelash. In fact, he has his magicians come down and do the same thing. So check out verse 21 through 24 with me. And the fish, the Nile, died. And the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and he went to his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. So the Egyptians are left digging into the ground to find water. You can notice here that the magicians are able to once again use their secret arts to replicate the plague. You'll also notice that they're able to do this a couple of times. The interesting question that we have to ask is if these men were able to replicate God's miracles, why couldn't they turn them back? Have you ever wondered that? Why didn't they use their secret arts to uh, heal the Nile? That would have been real power, but they could only replicate it. If you think about it, they must have gone to great lengths to replicate it. All the water had been turned to blood. So that means that they had to go and find good water by digging it, mind you, and then turn it into blood. One week after these events, God again tells Moses to approach Pharaoh and to tell him to let God's people go or suffer the consequences. In India, where Hinduism is strong, you'll find an odd scene, a scene where many people are starving but cows roam abundantly. You'll see cows in the streets, and in fact, actually, a study in 2018 stated that there were over 6 million of them roaming around, wandering through cities unhindered, causing damage and mayhem on a daily basis. All of this because the Hindu religion system says that cows are sacred and not to be harmed. Swing backward a couple thousand years, and you'll find that Egyptians worshipped frogs in much in the same way. There are even reports of people being put to death for killing frogs during this time period put to death for killing frogs. 
So Moses instructs Pharaoh and says that there will be consequences. Pick it up with me in chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. Chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and your ovens and your kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and the canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came, and they covered the land. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. We find out just a couple of verses later that the frogs are in the houses, and the courtyards, and the fields, and that there were so many, and that they all died and were piled up into heaps, and the land reeked to them in verses 13 and 14. The Egyptians couldn't go anywhere or do any work without chancing stepping on one of their sacred animals. It became a literal stumbling block. It's here that we also see that the magicians again repeat the trick. This time, Pharaoh doesn't harden his heart because he sees his magicians repeat the trick. Here he starts thinking that he's the one that's in control because of God's mercy. You see, there's this theme that kind of continues to repeat itself. A plague happens, and then Pharaoh says to Moses that he'll let God's people go. But then he retracts his statement after Moses asks God to end the plague. It's a deceptive way to operate, but Pharaoh still thinks he's ultimately in control through deceit and trickery. Plague three is lice or gnats, depending on your translation. Either way, it's a tiny little irritating bug that bites. This is where the tide starts turning. If you want to check out chapter 8, verse 18 and 19 with me. Chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since gnats were on the people and the animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. It's here that the magicians have been bested by the infinite God of creation, and they know it. What is really interesting here is that the magicians recognize God for what he can do. But Pharaoh sticks to his guns. The magicians, who have been finding ways to replicate God's handiwork, are smart enough to know when they've been bested. It says a lot about them, and even more about Pharaoh. Can you imagine? The God of the universe is slowly and methodically destroying your entire worldview. Everyone else is starting to recognize it, but you decide to carry on like nothing has happened and you're still in control? And we're only on plague three. Next comes the swarms of flies. Did you know that the Egyptians actually had a fly god? Yeah. If the flies from the dead fish and frogs weren't enough already because they would have been swarming around them. God says that there are going to be so many flies that all the Egyptian houses are going to be full of them in chapter 8 verse 21. It's here in plague 4 that God starts treating the Israelites differently. Up to this point, they've all been part of these plagues. He starts changing their circumstances and showing them that they are his chosen people. And they no longer suffer the plagues in the same way that the Egyptians do. And it continues to intensify and become more destructive. Of course, Pharaoh uses more deceit to get his way and continues to harden his heart throughout the whole process. Ramping up his attack on the Egyptians, God next attacks the livestock. Two of Egypt's gods were both depicted as cattle. 
God is slowly destroying not only their belief in false gods that cannot help them, but also slowly destroying their entire economic system, taking away anything that could possibly rely on instead of him. Pharaoh, after hearing the news that Moses' words have come true, has a census done to the damage. So let's pick up their story in chapter 9, verses 5 through 7. In chapter 9, the Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day, the Lord did it. All of the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. So Pharaoh is now being confronted with numbers that show that these events are not just coincidence. The evidence that he is not in power is so overwhelming that even as his magicians have stopped trying. This is also the turning point of who hardens Pharaoh's heart. This is the last time we really see Pharaoh doing the hardening. Though we cannot know everything that God had intended, we do know that Pharaoh is the one that started hardening his heart from the beginning. To all of this for a very long time, before God seems to step in and intervene in this process. After the death of the livestock, God gives new instructions to Moses and Aaron. This time, he'd taken soot from a furnace and he tosses it into the air. God takes the soot and he turns it into boils on both the people and their animals. Now you'll have to note here that the livestock are already dead at this point just happened in the last plague. So the animals mentioned here are probably their household animals. Let's read chapter 9, verses 10 through 12. Chapter 9, verses 10 through 12. So they took soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on the people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all of the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. So the boils are so bad that the magicians could not stand before them. What do you think that means? That it's so bad that they had to stay in bed? I actually think it means something else. I think that they were humiliated, possibly even humbled at their powerlessness in the situation. Pharaoh, on the other hand, now has his heart hardened by God. It's almost like God took what was already there and he just increased it. God let the heart continue on the path that had already been set, good or bad. This is where the context of the verse that I first spoke about at the beginning of the sermon comes in to full context. God, using Moses as a mouthpiece, says to Pharaoh, But for this purpose I have raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. As plague number seven is announced, the officials of Pharaoh finally are starting to take notice. Read with me chapter 9, verses 20 through 21. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Some of Pharaoh's officials are starting to take notice. The ship is sinking and everyone but Pharaoh and a couple of blind loyalists are paying attention. This time Pharaoh tells Moses he has sinned in verse 27. He asks Moses to pray for him and that God's people may leave. But again, just as soon as God ceases at Moses' request, mind you, Pharaoh and his officials hardened their hearts again, thinking that they could control God by using Moses' compassion through lies and deceit. It's here that Moses realizes what is going to happen, 
and tells Pharaoh in verse 29 and 30 this, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord. Moses had been on this merry-go-round before. He knew that he could no longer trust Pharaoh at his word, and that he would just have to trust God at his plan. Now the next several plagues happen like dominoes in quick succession. First comes the locusts that destroy whatever crops the hail had left standing. Then soon after comes what is referred to as the darkness. The Bible just calls it darkness, and it was only on the Egyptian side. It seems that this was not your normal darkness as it covers the Egyptians for three days, so they couldn't go anywhere. You would think if they had a fire to light their way that they could have gone places, but it seems that this darkness was so thick that nothing could penetrate it. The final death blow, as it were, is the death blow of the firstborn and the commemoration of the Passover. This plague is very unique. Until this point, if you were an Israelite, you had a free pass. Now it's required as a faith step of covering the door with blood. This plague becomes the strongest point toward the eventual coming of Jesus Christ as our Savior over death and how his blood alone covers us. God completely changed the circumstances of all the Israelites by this time. And by this time, the Egyptians were giving their wealth away to them as they were leaving. Within a month's time of arriving back in Egypt, Moses had seen God turn a nation from the most wealthy and respected nation to one of the poorest. In fact, one commentator said of the situation, as Israel was leaving the land, it would have looked more like a nuclear blast had happened between the red, blood-soaked shores of the Nile, the piles of dead bodies everywhere, and the crops having been laid to waste. Even the bark had come off the trees, and those trees would have been dying as well. It would have been complete and utter devastation, something Egypt was never fully able to come back from. God used this time to redirect his people by showing them that it wasn't their circumstances that defined their life, but rather it was who they put their trust into. Much like our lives today, as we have each had a little over a month's time to have our perspective shifted due to this coronavirus. God is still in control and he is showing up in some really neat ways. Have you taken notice? God used this time not only to instruct his people, but he also instructed the Egyptians as they bore witness of these events and had the opportunity to realize the hopelessness of their made-up gods as they had all been to made look like fools when the God of creation decided to show up. The Egyptians worshipped the different things that they saw that made their lives better. The book of Romans even makes a reference to these worship practices in chapter 1 verses 24 through 25. So Romans Chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and their lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now the Egyptians were not the only civilization to do this. There have been and still are many who follow these same practices. And while worshiping cows or cats may seem a little bit ridiculous to our American culture, what makes our lives look different than theirs is mostly just our present circumstances. They looked at the animals and the weather for guidance. 
but we aren't so different when you really think about it, as we look to our televisions and our smartphones for guidance and advice, for escape, for hope. For us, we hold in high regard these devices that are supposed to connect us, and in many ways they do, but they can't replace the deep relationships that our hearts long for. Just like they, we can also become obsessed with riches, as without it we can't survive. Or can we? Idols are not typically formed overnight. We wouldn't all think it preposterous should someone suggest that we worship an idol carved out of wood and metal. After all, most of ours come in glass and plastic, don't they? Idol worship is when you start placing your trust in something in place of God. It's something you've come to rely on instead of relying on Him on a daily basis. God was very clear to His people after they left Egypt, as several times over He says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. That comes from Exodus 34:14, but is said in several places. What is it today that you are trusting instead of God? What is it that you have let become your go-to for comfort and guidance? What can you change today to place God back in His rightful place in every area of your life? Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to look at your word. Thank you that we can learn from the lessons of history so we don't have to make the same mistakes. Lord, I ask that you continue to watch over each one of us and help us to not set up idols in our lives. And I know our circumstances look completely different than those in the days of Egypt, but we are prone to the same temptations and mistakes. Father, help us not make them. Help us through the spirit and the power of Jesus Christ working in our lives as believers to overcome these temptations. Lord, help us to continually look towards you for our soul comfort and joy. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to look into your word. Help us to change our lives to look more like your son because of it. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.